0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, I'm joined by Craig Pirong, Professor of Finance at the University of Houston's Bauer School of Business and owner of the blog, The Streetwise Professor. Craig is well known as one of the leading thinkers and authors on the commodity markets. Craig, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we're going to talk about, I guess, the long term impacts of COVID-19 on the, the global commodities markets. It was a real shock to the system when the global lockdown hit and caused a number of failures almost immediately, thinking of Hind Lion and, and Zenrock in Singapore. Can you talk to the immediate impacts before we dig into the longer term side of things?
1: Yes. And again, that's the the old thing about Warren Buffett used to say, when the tide goes out, that's where you find out where people were swimming without any trunks. And so there were c- certainly several examples of that, definitely.
0: Did it expose anything more than just some organizations that hadn't hedged properly, or as you say, didn't have any, have any trunks? What was the sort of the short-term immediate impact of COVID on the markets?
1: Clearly, the most important short run impact in terms of commodity markets was on demand. It was uh, a huge uh, downward uh, spike uh, in demand for particularly energy commodities because of the freeze up of transportation, for example, air transportation, but also just you know, people were driving less in their automobiles, uh, less truck traffic, things of that nature. And so the first order impact was a major decrease in demand and given the fact that commodity prices and energy prices uh, tend to be very uh, inelastically supplied uh, a big drop in demand is going to immediately translate into a big drop in price
0: and that did have some immediate impacts on the investors the sources of capital supply in the commodities markets i think of perhaps can you talk us through what happened what the the fallout was from those losses in Asia, those organisations collapsed because that had an immediate impact on trade finance, for example.
1: Yes, and I, you know, I think in some respects that was the, the the straw that broke the camel's back in trade finance. Trade finance has been under pressure for many years, so immediately in the aftermath of the financial crisis and the change in capital regulations uh, regarding the banks, uh, which uh, essentially increased. Uh, Risk charges associated with with trade finance, that was one of the the first straws that made providing trade finance, particularly by major European banks, which were the bulwarks of the industry, less attractive. Then throughout the next decade, basically, we've had increases in various sorts of risk, for example, sanctions risk, which has hit some commodity trade finance suppliers quite heavily. So I think that both of those things uh, it, it basically undermined the margins in commodity trade finance and made it less attractive to banks. And in that respect, what happened with COVID and what happened with the financial fallout and the failure of several of these firms was just really the, the final blow that convinced a lot of the major suppliers of trade finance that it was it just wasn't a, an efficient use of their capital.
0: So what are the long-term impacts of that? How are the commodity markets going to find that all-important trade finance?
1: There are going to be a couple of long-term impacts. The one long-term impact is essentially going to be to accelerate a trend that's been going on in the industry for some time, which is increasing consolidation, increasing uh, dominance of the major commodity trading firms and the squeezing out of uh, smaller to medium-sized firms. And so I think that uh, those firms have access to alternative sources of funding that are unavailable to smaller and medium firms. And so they're going to uh, actually, in some respects, benefit uh, from this uh, because uh, their rival's costs have been raised and that's going to be beneficial for them. So I think that's going to be one of the major overall trends is to to accelerate. Consolidation uh, of the industry, and that has a variety of potential knock-on effects in the future. But I think that's one clear trend. Related to that, or a consequence of that, is that the 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 increase in cost of trade finance is basically it's going to like the increase of any other cost in business. It's going to basically be passed upstream and or downstream. And so in the commodity trade sector, what that's going to tend to be is that to compensate for the higher costs of intermediating in these markets, the prices that producers get are going to be lower and the prices that consumers pay are going to be higher. And so there's going to be higher costs and and have to be increasing gross margins in order to compensate for
0: We have seen the rise of independent, privately owned trade finance vehicles dedicated to the commodity space over the last couple of years, and that this will only increase that trend and the opportunity for those types of organizations.
1: Absolutely. yeah. There there are always substitutes. So another way of putting it is essentially the, the costs and or the perceived risks by some of the previously inframarginal primary providers of trade finance have gone up. They're going to reduce their supply. Uh, That's going to tend to raise prices and attract other entities into performing this function.
0: Yeah. The other big impact, at least on the sources of capital, has been a wholesale route, dare I say it, of private equities, investment and interest in the shale markets here in, in the US.
1: Yes. First of all, I think it's important to draw a distinction. Between commodity trading, quad trading, which I would basically characterize as a midstream kind of activity and intermediary activity versus upstream activity and uh, sale, shale production and hydrocarbon production generally being an upstream activity and, and definitely the decline in prices and the expectation that prices will continue to be low for an extended period of time has made that a much upstream, a much less attractive destination for capital than it had been prior to COVID. Although I'll note that even prior to COVID, there was a lot of skepticism about the economics of upstream in the United States and the returns on capital were relatively poor. And so there were some widespread predictions that private equity and other sources of capital were going to exit or reduce their exposure in the uh, U.S. upstream, in particular, and this is uh, primarily served to uh, accelerate uh, that departure.
0: Yeah, I remember. You know, there was a number of articles swirling, as you say, in December and January, basically rounding on that skepticism. The, I guess, one we've discussed it on this podcast before, but one very memorable impact of COVID was the negative oil prices. Is has that driven any long-term change in ex- exchanges and how people account for risk? Is that something we now need to take into account in, in the future?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting episode because the, you know, the COVID-related demand decline and the associated accumulation of inventories was certainly a contributing factor to that. That was who essentially laid the groundwork for what happened, I guess it was April 20th uh, of 2020. But the negative oil prices themselves were almost certainly a technical factor associated with the liquidation of a couple hundred thousand barrels of of open interest. And so what are going to be the consequences of that? First of all, the exchanges were prepared for negative prices, or at least the CME and ICE were, because they allowed negative prices to occur on their trading platform. The operational problems associated with the negative prices were more in the future commission merchant, the brokerage sector, where several notable entities, uh, such as Interactive Brokers systems, were not capable of handling uh, negative prices. And I think once burned twice shy, they'll be able to handle that. The the other issue is, and this is going to be the result uh, or the consequence, I think, of forensic exercises by the CME in particular, but also the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission in the United States, as to what was actually the trading dynamics that caused that. And I think that the exchanges going forward will be introduce preventative measures going forward. So, yeah, I I can't say it's a one-off, but it's, you know, again, one of those kind of things is that uh, uh, once that's occurred, given the the hugely disruptive effects that it had, I think that the exchanges and the regulators are going to be extremely uh, focused on making sure that it doesn't happen again.
0: Does that suggest that there's some suspected impropriety about that particular event?
1: It remains to be seen. There have been lawsuits filed alleging manipulation. So, The trading dynamics around the liquidation of any futures contract are always a little bit fraught. There are games that can be played around liquidation, and in particular, under the circumstances prevailing during that time, with the uncertainty about the availability of storage, that would be the kind of circumstances under which liquidation games, if you will, could exacerbate and overwhelm, in some respects, fundamentals.
0: But we're not looking at some seismic shift in how exchanges operate or commodities are trading as a result?
1: Yeah, I don't think so. Like I say, it's just going to be that that exchanges have always been particularly vigilant about looking at how commodity contracts trade out. And I think that this will primarily serve to increase their vigilance. Uh, And maybe focus on particular mechanisms. For example, one factor that's been addressed or raised in the context of the April 19th episode was the what are called traded settlement contracts, where people early in the day say, hey, I'll just buy or sell the expiring futures contract at whatever there is the settlement price at the end of the day. That's the kind of mechanism that can be uh, uh, abused uh, in the past, there have been some CFTC actions uh, focused on those kinds of you know, exploitation of those sorts of instruments. And so I think that there might be some more uh, focus on those and maybe some more uh, regulation or scrutiny around those. But that's not going to represent uh, any sort of seismic change in the way that exchanges up.
0: The straw that broke the camel's back from plentiful trade finance out there and that will as you say lead to potentially rising costs and has driven consolidation which i think we're going to come back to one of the big topics that has been swirling around obviously prior to covid but the feeling is covid is only accelerating it is digitization in the commodities space whether that's digitizing trades and these blockchain distributed ledger platforms to facilitate trading just how trades occur What's your sense there? Is that a real thing or what's your opinion?
1: I'll have to uh, admit to some skepticism about this. This is an area uh, that I've been... Somewhat focused on over the past you know, three or four years or so, I wrote an article came out uh, earlier this year uh, expressing some of the skepticism about, about blockchain and digitization, not just in commodities, but more broadly, because it's one of those kinds of things. It's been touted as the cure for everything, not just the problems in commodity trade finance or commodity paperwork, commodity trade paperwork and things of that nature. So I would you know, raise a couple of points of that. The first is that there have been several initiatives over the past several years to try to introduce uh, block trade, distributed kinds of technologies to commodity trade. And they have tended to work when they're implemented within a single company. So, for example, a shipping company like Maersk or a commodity company like Cargill, when doing things internally uh, to track inventories and essentially monitor their value chain those have gained some the 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 main distinction or the main issue comes in when you talk about blockchain platforms that are intended to be multilateral multi-user and essentially facilitate, record keeping and the flow of information among a variety of parties that are trading in the market and so there was uh, there's a, an ongoing effort i think Morgan Stanley BP maybe Shell several of the major energy i think Vitol is involved too several of the major energy trading companies have racked right uh, yeah have rolled out a uh, essentially a prototype a block trade a blockchain platform to uh, for energy trading uh, several years ago the scene which is a cotton trading platform in which uh, louis dreyfus is a major participant rolled out a uh, a cotton blockchain platform and I use that sometimes as an example of, of what these things often are, is that there was a great splash initially and in press releases, things of that nature, and trying to find any uh, evidence of its actual existence uh, subsequent to the time of the initial launch is, is rather difficult. And you know, so these things have been mooted, they've been proposed, uh, some have been launched, but heretofore, they haven't gained a tremendous amount of traction. And I think that this is inherent in the nature of these kinds of systems because basically, in order to have value, these sort of platforms have to have uh, essentially a core, uh, a critical mass of participants. And that poses a coordination problem. How do you get everybody on board using the same platform? And trying to do that and succeeding in doing that is frequently very difficult. Just, yes, sometimes it can be just very prosaic sorts of reasons. It's just that people, you know, different people are thinking about it and they're not really ready to commit. And so you never can really get a critical mass. Another reason is that there are commercial and competitive considerations that may. Make people say, hey, I don't really necessarily want to got, get involved in a platform uh, where my competitors are involved and they might have some sort of governance role and uh, my information might be exposed to them. And that can make uh, firms reluctant to participate. And frequently, you can have a, a coordination problem associated with getting these things started and getting the critical mass. Now that that raises the question whether the problems associated with COVID and the things that were revealed in Singapore, et cetera, might be the, the catalyst for assembling that critical mass. It's possible, but I have to consider myself still somewhat skeptical about it. I think that the that the the obstacles to buy-in are are pretty high. And, and also there's some questions about whether blockchain can actually solve and digitization more generally can solve some of the problems that have cropped up in recent years. And in that regard, what I would say is that a lot of the problems that we've seen recently, these are not new things. These are sort of hardy perennials and that these sorts of blowups in response to big price movements are something that have been around for years and years, these are not new problems. One of the things in terms of some of the Singapore issues was you know, double selling of cargoes or selling of inventory that wasn't there. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember rather dimly, at least as an original memory, but I've read about it subsequently is the great salad oil scandal in which uh, American Express in particular provided a huge amount of finance to fund inventory in soybean oil that didn't exist. And so in some respects, what we've seen recently is back to the future. And yeah, I think that blockchain, et cetera, might be somewhat helpful in addressing those kinds of issues of outright fraud. But yeah, Again, color me somewhat skeptical as to whether there'll be the the, the silver bullet that will eliminate that, that kind of activity.
0: Yeah. I mean, prima facie, it seems like there's an alignment there, especially over double selling of cargoes and, and collateral and so forth, that blockchain is certainly, as, as I understand it, would tackle. It's interesting to wonder whether actually what would be the catalyst for this would be the trade finance, the banks um, demanding it. And that might be the driver that gets that, that network effect that you you talk about as potentially limiting.
1: I think that's true. But I, on the other hand, if they're leaving the market, they're not going to be the catalyst. That's And, and then also you have the issue of the coordination problem among the banks. Because again, just one bank starting their platform is really not going to be an industry solution. So then you have to have the banks play together and and that raises another issue that I addressed in the uh, the paper, which was in the Journal of uh, Applied Corporate Finance uh, that I alluded to, which is that whenever you have these sort of industry wide endeavors, then that immediately raises antitrust issues. This would be international antitrust issues, and I think that also may be another impediment to these sort of efforts because uh, these kinds of things tend to get enhanced scrutiny from antitrust regulators. And that would be another headache that I don't think that market participants, particularly a lot of the the private trading companies, uh, the big private companies in particular, are not uh, all that enthusiastic about subjecting themselves to that sort of
0: scrutiny. Yeah, and that's a pretty neat segue rounding back on that consolidation uh, you know we have seen over the last 20 years and particularly i think the last 10 since the global financial crisis we've gone from a plethora of trading houses of various sizes and a few larger ones to now really the that sector that global trading independently being dominated by four or five really big players covid has accelerated that as you say of really only those large organisations really have access to the financing that they need. Do do you think that's a continuing trend that, that COVID is only accelerating? And and very briefly, what does that ultimately mean for the commodities space?
1: Yeah, I think that COVID is going to to contribute to that, and particularly the channel by which it's going to contribute to that is this uh, reduction in trade finance from traditional (laughs) sources. And so in particular, many of the major trading houses have proved themselves to be somewhat innovative in uh, finding uh, uh, new ways uh, to fund themselves fund their working capital in particular. And this is a very working capital focused and working capital intensive industry. And so this is gonna this is going to increase their advantage in that dimension. And so it's gonna cement and perhaps expand their dominance. And so it has a couple of longer term consequences. The one I think I alluded to earlier, which is essentially it's gonna mean that 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 gross margins in the industry are going to go up to the detriment of, of consumers and producers. And, but also it raises an issue uh, that I addressed in one of the working papers that I did for Traffic Europe you know, had, you know, a handful of years ago. And was actually the, the, this issue was one of the catalysts for me uh, you know, doing that paper. So the, the, the background is I, I was originally approached to To look into commodity trading firms and their systematic importance in 2000.
0: This is the economics of commodity trading, right?
1: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so this is going to be a little bit of a shaggy dog story because it's you know, so go back into the history. But I was approached actually by Blythe Masters to write a paper investigating the systemic of commodity trading firms. And uh, it was very interesting to me, an interesting topic. I was interested in system, uh, systemic risk. I'd written a lot of stuff about clearing and systemic risk, uh, running out of the financial crisis. I'd always been interested in commodity trading firms. So it seemed to be a nice uh, a way for me to do a deep dive into commodity trading firms learn more about them, think more about them. And uh, so I did the paper and I came up with the wrong answer. Uh, the wrong answer being is that no, at least at the time, they didn't uh, pose a systemic risk. And so as that was not the answer that was desired, the paper was not released. But through processes not and, uh, of which I am not aware of, essentially, the, the paper was released or leaked. And uh, it was the subject of a uh, Financial Times article. Javier Blas, who was at the FT at the time, now at Bloomberg, wrote an article titled something like, Bank-Funded Commodity Trading Study Backfires. And that's what raised this trafficker aware of my existence. And and then they reached out to me and that resulted in the couple of white papers. But this, the second of the white papers was specifically focusing on the issue of systemic risk. And so then the question is, if you have a really concentrated industry with a relatively small number of major firms... Does that pose does that pose a systemic risk in the sense that if one of them ran into financial difficulties, could that have disruptive effects on the industry and on the the broader economy at, at large? And my conclusion of that second study was is that well at least I think I did that one in two thousand and fourteen uh, maybe it was, I guess it was two thousand and thirteen in two thousand and thirteen. You know, my answer was no, that the world will survive and the economies, the world economy would survive the distress of, of one of these major firms. Now, with their increasing importance and their increasing dominance, you know, maybe that's a question that would have to be revisited. My initial take is that, well, still it's probably the case that they're not really systemically important. That is, if you think about the failure of a, a major commodity trading firm would be unlikely to have the same effect as, for example, the failure of Lehman Brothers in terms of the broader financial system of the economy. That said, it's more likely that in the, at least in the short run, that the difficulties of one of these firms could have disruptive effects in the commodity space and particular portions of the commodity space so that's a, something that i think needs to be perhaps reevaluated, particularly if this uh, tendency towards consolidation continues
0: which is fascinating when you then apply covid because the the overarching impact at least to my mind of covid 19 is suddenly at a national level, people are aware of their, the frailty of their supply chains. Yes, and there's, there's a lot of talk about controlling supply chains, particularly in fundamental or necessary commodities, necessary even antibiotics, etc. And that, I guess, when you combine it with the dominance of a few trading houses, might I w- suggest? You know, I guess we've got the rise of national champions. Can you, can you talk to that supply chain, securing supply chains, and 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 that's impact on the commodities market?
1: Yeah, I think that this is still a work in progress, but I would make a couple of points. The one point that I would make is that this is potentially actually beneficial to commodity trading firms, because one of the one of the ways that I conceptualize commodity trading firms is that they are focused on optimizing the value chain on optimizing supply chains and in responding to shocks to that supply chain and bottlenecks within that supply chain. So in some respects, this you know, fragmentation of supply chains uh, could actually redound to the benefit of commodity trading firms, because I think one of their functions will be to try to find ways to ameliorate that fragmentation and that they'll make money by doing that. In, in terms of The national champion aspect of things, yeah, I think that's most likely to be focused, you know, know, in particular on China, where the idea of having uh, a a nationalized firm or a private firm that is essentially uh, anointed by the government as having a special role, that's more like that that in in those kind of countries. I can see that definitely being a response. In terms of yeah you know, other geopolitical entities, the European Union or the United States, yeah I just yeah, yeah I don't see it as being as likely that that there would be national champion commodity trading firms. They're more likely to be regulations or laws that are intended to provide protections to supply chains that then international firms will have to accommodate and that international firms will evolve to accommodate. That will be another example of, in some respects, you might think of it as a bottleneck that, say, for example, the United States might put restrictions on sourcing of certain commodities. I'll just pull an example. I can see going forward rare earths or things associated with the pharmaceutical supply chain, but that it's unlikely that they would anoint particular U.S. firms as being the the ones that would be the, the guarantors of that, or that they would use a national firm as the way of securing that. It would just more likely be a, a, a constraint that, that firms would have to respond to
0: you've got certainly that that worry around supply it's interesting that there's that worry around supply chains you've already and that might itself probably a bigger subject than this podcast but it'd be accelerating or contributing to a a deglobalization decoupling that's going on within the global economy which as you say is only going to provide more opportunity for the trading houses to do what they do which is intimate intermediate the the commodities the flow of physical commodities and I guess they have a rare expertise in being able to move these commodities around from different regions, different countries, et cetera. So with that accelerating de- or potential deglobalization, yeah, they are. it is going to provide a lot of opportunity.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think that's, uh, and, and particular one of those things that these firms uh, you know, are somewhat expert at is uh, arbitraging, if you will, some of the political issues and legal issues Now, sometimes that's perhaps exposed them to some some risk. It certainly has exposed them to some risk. But that's one of their comparative advantages is sort of looking at, at, at not just the physical environment, the economic fundamental environment, but looking at the, the legal and political environment and finding ways to uh, move stuff from where it's in excess supply to where it's in excess demand, but in ways that respects those those legal and, and regulatory constraints. And again, it, it, if you if there's something that you have a comparative advantage in, and that and that thing is increased, that actually redounds to your benefit. Give you an interesting example of that. I think if you look at the uh, what happened in response to the sort of the initial trade war, I know it sounds like ancient history, but in 2018, 2019, various restrictions between the United States and China, some some commodity trading firms benefit from that benefited from that because they were able to uh, have workarounds in order to respond to that and they also had assets in the right places so it was great uh, if you had assets in Brazil and, and and South America it wasn't so good if you had assets in the the United States uh, that were oriented towards handling say soybeans or corn but i think that the, the general the general point is that even though certain things might have uh, negative implications for the overall quantity of trade, they can still redound to the benefit of commodity trading firms to the extent that one of their reasons for existing is finding ways uh, to uh, work around bottlenecks. And uh, bottlenecks are not necessarily always physical. Uh, and one of the things I teach about uh, in my various courses is that increasingly over the last, say, 20, 30 years, Uh, many of the bottlenecks in the commodity industry have been uh, regulatory and legal. And that actually creates an opportunity for firms that have expertise in circumventing bottlenecks.
0: There's the evidence of what you've just discussed is that we've seen on balance, the commodity trading houses have an excellent year to date. And also, so have actually the commodity trading platforms within investment banks as well. Both sets of entities have competitive advantages in one or both of those two areas.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah, it, it's interesting that, that yeah, particularly if you look at, at energy trading firms uh, and particularly energy trading firms that have uh, storage assets, for example, actually big decline uh, demand declines can actually be very profitable for them because they can make a substantial amount of money on engaging. One of the three basic transformations that I teach about is commodity trading is about transforming commodities in space, time, or form. And so when you have a big demand drop, which is anticipated, hopefully, to be uh, temporary, that means that you want to store more of the commodity. And if you have storage assets, it's a great time to be alive. And or if you you have, a, again, a competitive or comparative advantage in figuring out ways to store commodities efficiently. And in terms of the banks, yeah, I think there was just an article out in Bloomberg today that the bank commodity desks have done better uh, this year than they have in, in, in many years. Their main function is in terms of, you know, first of all, somewhat trading, but also in terms of their flow business, uh, facilitating the management of risk and the allocation of risk. And COVID has created a lot of risks, and, and, that, and that's beneficial for the, the firms that are in the business of, of helping others manage that risk. Yeah, so it's an ill wind that doesn't uh, that blows no one any goods.
0: And talking of transformations in a different way, a big theme has been: has COVID, will COVID accelerate energy transition? Which we uh, we've discussed on a previous episode of this podcast that actually the, the trading houses uh, and those banks, they're traders, right? So they, they've whilst the commodities may shift, there's still this, the same opportunity available to them. What's your view on whether COVID will be when we look back on this year, 2020? do you think it will be a significant watershed for that for energy transition and decarbonization
1: yeah yeah that's another one that i'm somewhat skeptical about but in part it's going to depend on the sort of the longer run macro consequences of this so to the extent that the covid shock is uh, relatively short duration yeah, you know, so that yeah, you know, so that basically uh, yeah, that it uh, Dissipates over, say, the next year. I think it's uh, uh, much less likely that it will be the catalyst for a long-term transformation in energy consumption or production. Again, these are you you, you talk about energy production assets. They tend to be very long-lived, very capital-intensive. And so the investments in those sorts of things are going to be driven more by long-term fundamentals than short-term fundamentals. And so to the extent that COVID appears to be a, or turns out to be a short-term fundamental, then, yeah, I think that, the, that, that its implications for energy transition are going to be modest, if not minimal. However, the one thing I should note, though, is that you know, I think some of the biggest impacts of COVID have been political and that many of the biggest impacts, economic impacts have COVID have been of a result, not so much of the virus per se, but as a result of political responses uh, to the virus. And when you see over the last uh, several days, the UK talking about dramatically uh, increasing restrictions and what's going on in Australia. You see the ferment in the United States where there's still an intense uh, debate over whether lockdown should be reintroduced uh, and so on. Those political consequences could be longer lasting and they can have a, a, a bigger impact on these energy transition issues. Related to that, is the political adage of let no crisis go to waste. And there have been many that have had pre-existing desire to facilitate or force uh, an energy transition that are viewing COVID as one of the opportunities to advance that agenda. So that's another sort of wild card. And then we're getting into the area of, of political prognostication as opposed to economic fundamentals, And there I will say I do not have a comparative advantage. So uh, I'll just throw that out as a uh, – just basically that I – just identifying that I think that the impact of COVID on the energy transition is going to be driven more by the political response to COVID on a variety of dimensions than it will be to the – what we've seen in the last seven months.
0: And as politics is driven by – the people, for the most part, it's going to be interesting to see how the how it plays out globally. Because obviously, what COVID has done gave us that very short window into seeing what the local environment was like without fossil fuel burning, at least uh, traffic and so on.
1: I bring up one point about that, though, because it's a pet peeve of mine, which is that yeah, you know, that yeah, you know, one of the things about yeah, you know, that's uh, distressing about COVID is a siloed thinking where it's, it's just looking at. The health issues and not taking into account a lot of the other broader trade-offs associated with various policy choices. And I think that also goes uh, with with energy and a over-focusing on, on CO2, you know, carbon emissions as the metric by which you evaluate the environmental impact of uh, energy consumption and the forms of energy production, I think is is very problematic.
0: In contrast to Rare earths and toxicity of the other metals that go into a lot of the new technologies, right? I guess. Yeah. So
1: mining is hardly uh, sort of an environmentally benign thing, and if you look at the material demands, so like Madonna here, Material Girl or something, but looking in the at the material needs to dramatically scale up the amount of renewables production. And then you think about the economic, the environmental and economic consequences of that, they're they're definitely not benign. I can't tell you what the answer is, but I think it's a a trade off that really needs to be vetted fully. And heretofore the monomaniacal focus on carbon has has prevented that vetting. And so I yeah, that that That's a major uh, concern that I have and that you really have to think about, gee, how exactly, what would you need to do in order to scale up renewables production? Yeah. Then you take into account all the, the reliability issues, which sort of came to the fore in California last month. And then again, you think, oh, gee, yeah, that's yeah, they had achieved a relatively modest uh, scale of renewables penetration. What are the reliability consequences of dramatically increasing that amount of penetration, a, not a statewide scale, but a national scale or an international scale? So,
0: Well, to solve that intermittency, you need batteries. And obviously, they have components that are, as you say, high levels of toxicity. And that brings us back as well to securing supply chains. If we are to go down a a battery-intensive world, uh, a lot of those metals don't exist within within the West.
1: No, absolutely. So, I mean, this, if you look at – yeah, so this would be a, a huge boon to Glencore and Trafigura, for example, who are the sort of two dominant traders in the metal trading space, and Going back to earlier discussion about concentration among trading, that uh, this would essentially increase the salience of that issue as well. So you know, these are a lot of the uh, you know, unseen or you know, potentially unintended consequences that I really think need to be, to be surfaced and, and so that, that people understand more fully what some of the consequences and, and some of the steps necessary for energy transition are.
0: Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Really thank you for your time, Craig. Uh, and people can find you to your blog, The, the Streetwise Professor. Look, I, I really hope we can carry on the discussion in a couple of years and see, see what held true and what other things we didn't consider.
1: Maybe that will be conditional on how accurate my predictions were. I don't know. So say. <laughs> so, but it's been it, a pleasure. I've enjoyed the conversation and I hope your listeners uh, benefit. it.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.